Father God, we come into Your presence in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's only for that reason that we can come, God. We thank You, Lord, that You have made a way for us to know You and to love You through Your Son, Jesus, and through the sacrifice that was made at the cross on our behalf. And now we're told that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And we do that, Lord. We're so grateful. We love You. We're so excited to be called sons and daughters of the living God and to know You and to grow in our knowledge of You day by day and to serve You, Lord, with excitement, with joy, to obey You from the heart. And so we praise You, Father. We praise You. You're worthy. You are so worthy, Lord, of all that we can give and so much more. So much more. And so we ask, Lord, that this morning You would bless our study of the Word, that we would be encouraged, enriched, that we would be challenged, that You, O Lord, would be glorified. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Alright, folks, well, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 today. We're going to slow it down a little bit as we uh, move into this very practical portion of Romans. And I'll I'll speak more uh, to that in just a moment. But I'd like to start by reading to you two texts, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. The first is Isaiah 6, and then I will read to you from Acts chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. Um, You just hold your place in Romans So in Isaiah chapter 6 it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the glory of the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 9, a story I think many of us are so familiar with, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, any who were Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So two very dramatic stories, one from the Old, one from the New Testaments. But essentially what happens is is very similar, very similar. When someone comes to a a knowledge of God, when they have such a, a radical encounter with the Lord, when they have such a wonderful vision of Him, what happens? They break under the glory of that and they give themselves in service to Him. Both times. Isaiah, when he sees this wonderful vision of God on His throne in the temple, 
He cries out. He recognizes his own sinfulness and his inability to stand before a holy God. But in the end, he says, Lord, here I am. Send me. Use me. And Saul of Tarsus, as he was kicking against God, not knowing that God was drawing him, that he was fighting against the very one who was drawing him in, Jesus revealed himself on the road to Damascus. He fell down to the ground. He came to realize who this one was that he was actually persecuting, fighting against. And what was his response? Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me to do, Lord? And that is the proper response, folks. That is the accurate, that is the right response when you come into the knowledge of the Lord, when you have a vision of Him. As we understand the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we understand what has been secured for us at the cross, then it is the appropriate response to fall down before Him in worship, to thank Him, and to give our lives to Him in service. Amen? When we come to a more full understanding of who God is, and that is a lifelong journey, folks. I think it will be an eternal journey. As we are growing in the knowledge of our God, we go to a deeper place of love, adoration, and service. And that's what we're seeing happen in Romans chapter 12 today. As we have spent 11 chapters discovering the glorious Gospel and growing in our knowledge of God, who He is, and what He has done, Paul finishes up that very doctrinal portion of Scripture and then he turns. As is so common in Pauline literature, the writings of Paul, he then goes into the practical. How then shall we live in light of this great God and what He has done? We see that over and over in his writings. So that brings us to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So let me read that to you. I beseech you therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Such a glorious couple of verses there. I'm sure that most of us in here are very familiar with them. I'm sure we have heard it many times over, heard it preached many times over, read it countless times, perhaps even memorized it. I, I was just, it occurred to me this morning, I think these are the first verses that I ever memorized. And so, pretty cool. But my prayer is that today we would see this and hear this with fresh eyes and ears. That we wouldn't just gloss over it. That it wouldn't be so familiar that it has lost its power, its glory, its wonder, but that we would see it afresh and that we would be moved afresh. So I have titled this message, Step Forward. Step Forward, because that's essentially what Paul is calling the Christians there in Rome to do. In light of everything that Paul has said between chapters 1 and 11, now it's time to get busy, time to give yourself to the Lord. And so verse 1, I would say that's, that's exactly what we have happening here. Give yourself to God. And then verse 2, it's let God transform you. Let God change you. And so I would say well, that's two main points, and that summarizes verse 1 and 2. So with that, let's go ahead and get into it. So verse 1, I'll read it again because this, this is important. Every word or phrase just about has so much depth and meaning to it that we could really get lost in each phrase. So I'm going to be a little repetitive here as I'm reading the verses and trying to keep uh, in front of us what we're actually saying and studying. So, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Notice, therefore. He says, therefore. And, and we know this, guys. Whenever you see therefore... Is referring back to something that has already been said or stated, and that pretty much informs what we're getting ready to step into here. Some people have said that this, therefore, is outlining all of the 11 chapters before. Some say that it ties into the few verses that preceded, and I would say that it's both. So, just by way of reminder or recap, verses 1 through 3, we were guilty in our sin, dead in our trespass and sin. Helplessly and hopelessly lost 
And we spent quite a, quite a bit of time talking about that. That's our condition outside of Christ. But then verses uh, chapters 4 through 5, we are justified. We are declared innocent through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not by the works of the law. It's not by our own righteousness because we have none. It is by faith in the finished work of the cross that we are declared righteous and innocent. And it is Jesus' righteousness which is given to us. Amen? And so then we begin to talk about sanctification, how we are growing in our Christ-likeness. Chapters 6 and 7, we talk about the struggle that, has, uh, that exists. And so we are delivered ultimately from sin's penalty and from sin's power. And we know one day we will be delivered from sin's presence. And I know that we all look forward to that. Well, chapter 8 talks about all the blessings that are ours in Christ. It becomes a very Spirit-centered chapter. Twenty times in the chapter, the Spirit is mentioned. And uh, we are told that we've been adopted and extravagantly blessed with spiritual blessings. And then chapters 9 through 11, this is all God's doing. God's sovereignty. He is the author and the perfecter of salvation. All things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. And we talked about that last night. He is the author of salvation. He is the, the architect, if you, will, uh, if you will. He accomplished that salvation. It is through Him, and it is ultimately for His glory. It is ultimately for His pleasure. And we are certainly, we benefit from it in extraordinary and eternal ways, but ultimately it is all for Him. And so, that brings us into chapter 12, verse 1. Based on all of that, and that is glorious, is it not? Based on all of that, He says, I beg you, I beg you, I beseech you, brethren, to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice. This word beseech, I beseech you, it's parakaleo. It's the same word that's used at times for the Holy Spirit when He's referred to as our comforter or our counselor. It is a summons. It's an invitation. Frankly, it's, it's begging. It's exhorting. It's encouraging. This is a shepherd's plea. Paul is not pushing them. Paul is not guilting them. Paul is not dragging them. He's coming alongside with his arm around them saying, Come, let's go. Let's follow the Lord. Let's give ourselves to Him wholly unto His service. It is a shepherd's plea. You have to see that. And so, let's make this personal. This is my plea to you. This is my plea to you guys. Let us give ourselves entirely to the Lord as a living sacrifice. We're going to talk more about that. This is a call to action. This is not, I don't want this just to fall to the ground. I don't want you to even maybe hear it and then be convicted by it, which would be a great starting point, but I want you to respond. I am preaching for a response today. Amen? And so that was what Paul was doing. That is what I am doing. I am saying, I beg you. I plead with you. I come alongside you. Brethren. And this is significant. Notice the word brethren there. It's, in the Greek, it's Adelphoi. Generally, it's Adelphos, brothers. But when it's Adelphoi, it's plural. And it means brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Christians. God's church. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now this is significant. Notice that the brethren is plural, the bodies is plural, but the sacrifice is singular. So we are many and we come together corporately and we offer ourselves to the Lord as one, one living sacrifice. This is corporate worship. God's people gather that is one of the greatest gifts, I believe, that God has given us in addition to salvation is one another. That we can gather together as God's people in God's name to celebrate what Jesus did at the cross, to remember His resurrection, to look forward to His return, and to encourage one another in the Lord. That is one of the reasons why we gather. That's, there are a number of reasons why we gather. There are a few right there. So I'm going to be talking about more of these things in the coming weeks. I just want to say that this is kind of a rally cry. Paul is kind of making the case that, that we must act. But in the coming chapters, he's going to really flesh this out. 
He's going to begin to talk about what this looks like. And so we're going to spend some time getting really into the details of what it means to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. But for now, I'm just going to keep it simple. Suffice it to say this is a, a rally cry. And here he states the significance, I believe, of corporate worship. So I just want to talk about that for just a moment. When we give ourselves to God, we gather as God's people. How do we do that? How should we do that? First off, I would say we should do it eagerly. We should gather as God's people as a living sacrifice unto Him eagerly. I don't know about you guys, but I look forward to this day. I get so excited every week, especially the morning of, as people start to show up. I just love to be with you guys. And then I love after the service to be with you after the service. And throughout the week when I'm able to see you guys at different events, different functions, or even one-on-one, it's such a blessing to my heart. And so it's something that, it's not drudgery to me. It's not something that it's a drag or that I am murmuring or complaining about it. It's something that I am excited to do. And I hope that that is the case for you all. I hope that you look forward to coming and being with your brothers and sisters in Christ and worshiping God corporately. And I come expectantly. I come expectantly. How about you? Do you expect to be blessed? Are you anticipating a blessing through being with each other, through hearing God's Word taught and preached, through the the congregational singing, all of these different things that are happening in the worship service? Do you come to be a blessing? Do Do you expect to bless others? We should come eagerly and expectantly. And may I say we should come consistently. Eagerly, expectantly, and consistently. And that's something I think uh, is it's a, a challenge for most churches. People to come on time, to arrive early or at least on time, and to come consistently. You know, I was reminded of a, a story I heard years ago. Pastor Chuck Swindoll was teaching, I believe out of Second Samuel. And if you're familiar with that, that book, there was King David and he was a warrior and he had his mighty men. Uh, his soldiers, and uh, it's basically working through uh, some of those guys' credentials, uh, kind of what were some of the spectacular things that they did in warfare on the battleground, and it begins to list them out, and he said there was one guy who killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day, and he said, Lord, how in the world am I supposed to make that practical? And it dawned on him, and he said, I know people who won't come to church on a rainy day, and this guy killed a, pit, a lion in a pit on a snowy day. That's impressive. And I thought, that's good. That's a great application. I like that. I'm going to use that. And that is the truth, guys. Uh, this is so important. We want to be here consistently with each other. We don't want to miss a week. If you miss one Sunday, that's two whole weeks you're going without being with your brothers and sisters, without being in fellowship here. And so every single week matters And showing up on time, showing up on time to the service says a lot. It says that you really care about exalting God, bringing Him praise. If you show up 15, 20, 30 minutes late, that communicates kind of the opposite. And I understand, folks, believe me, I have two small children. I know how that goes. And there are times when we're sick or there are legitimate reasons for being late. But if we're eager to be here, if we're excited, if we are expectant, We're going to be consistent. We're going to be even early to come and to worship. We gather as a family of believers. We sing together. We give offerings to the Lord. We give to the Lord the first fruits of our increase financially. We pray to the Lord. There is the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. There is evangelism happening here as the Gospel is going forth. There are the operations of the gifts as every believer has a gift that they are to share with the body for the blessing and the building up of the body. All of that is happening. And that is exciting. That is God-honoring. That's something that we all should want to be a part of. And so that's what we're called to do when we gather as a body and we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. So by what means are we to do this? We're told that it's by the mercies of God. It's by the mercies of God that we are to give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. God's mercy, that is, His pity or His compassion, His favor and grace. And we see this with Jesus. He would see the multitudes and He would be moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And He loved them. He served them. He blessed 
the people. And we consider, when we consider the mercy of God, the kindness of God, it compels us, does it not? It compels us to respond to God favorably. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When we understand the love of God, the mercy of God, how gracious God has been with us, the patience and the long-suffering of God towards us, it compels us to love Him more and to know Him more and to serve Him more. It's God's mercy. Now, there are a lot of ways in which people would try to move you to, uh, to serve the Lord or to surrender your life to Him wholly. And sometimes it's guilt. Sometimes it's manipulation. Sometimes it's fear tactics. You fill in the blank. But ultimately, it's by the Lord's mercies. It's by the Lord's mercies that we are to present ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice. I couldn't help but think of Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Also some verses I memorized very early on. I would encourage you to memorize these. It says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because God is so merciful and gracious that He doesn't just wipe us out altogether. Because His compassions fail not. His compassions do not fail. They do not run out. They do not go empty. And they are new every morning. Love that verse. His compassions, His mercies, they're new every single day, every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is the faithfulness of our God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. God is my treasure. God is my inheritance. God is my portion. And so when we recognize God's mercy, God's compassion, the reality that God is our treasure, we desire to know Him more. We desire to love Him more. We desire to step forward and to serve Him. And so we're told that we are to present our bodies to Him. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies to Him. Present yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. This word present... It literally means step forward. And that's why I've titled this message, Step Forward. Just like Isaiah and Paul. When they had this glorious vision of God, they stepped forward. I mean, I think Paul kind of crawled forward. He was on his face. But he moved forward towards God nonetheless. We're told that we're to present ourselves in the same way. Present our bodies to the Lord. Step forward into His service. I couldn't help but think of Romans 6.13. It uses the same language. He says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we are to present ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices unto His service. We are no longer to present our bodies as instruments or vessels of unrighteousness. Now we've all been there and done that. We know what that's all about. We know what that is like. There comes a point when God says, no more of that. You're not to live like that anymore. You're not to look like the world, sound like the world, talk like the world, act like the world. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But he said, instead, you're going to present yourselves to me as a living sacrifice. You're going to give yourself entirely to me. And so when we talk about presenting our bodies, when we talk about presenting our bodies to God, Here's what we're saying. God, I'm giving you all of me. I'm giving you all of me. Does, does God have all of you? Does God have all of you? This is much like the burnt offerings. This is sacrificial language from the Old Testament and it is much like the burnt offerings in Leviticus chapter 1. The significance of the burnt offering is you would lay the entire sacrifice on the altar and it would be consumed. Every bit of it. You didn't keep any of it back for yourself. The priest didn't keep any of it for himself. It was a sacrifice given entirely to God. And it was a free will offering. It wasn't because of sin. It wasn't to make some sort of payment out of obligation. It is free worship giving, giving to God one's entire self. And I think that's really what we see here. We are to give God all of us. All of us. That is our head our minds, our thoughts. Do your thoughts belong to the Lord? Do you take every thought captive in obedience to Him? 
Do you strive and struggle for purity of mind unto the Lord? Do you worship God with your intellect? Do you seek to just shut your mind off and engage God purely from the heart? It's a dangerous thing to do. I've talked about that. We ought to engage God with our minds and worship Him with our intellect as we consider His attributes, His character, the work of His hands, what He has accomplished for us, giving God our mind. Do we give Him our hearts? Some people are all head. It's all intellectual. It's all head knowledge. There's no heart yearning there for the Lord. We're to give God all of ourselves, our mind and our heart, our affections, our loyalty, our desires, all of that belongs to Him. Giving God your hands, your hands, your service to Him, your obedience to Him. We're to love God with our minds, heart, and strength. Amen? Giving Him your hands. To give God our time. Does your time belong to the Lord? Because you only have so much of it. It's a very valuable commodity. I believe the older that we get, the more valuable it becomes. We have less of it. And so to give God the best, to give Him our time, the first fruit of the day. I think it's so important, folks, that when you get up, to try your best to give God the first part of your day, if you can. To give God of our resources, of our finances even. We're told throughout the whole Bible that we ought to give to God the first fruit of our increase. And God blesses us. He gives us provision. He gives us these resources. And we're told to give back to Him. So even when we give to the Lord financially, that is worship, folks. That is our service to Him. We are giving back to Him with thanksgiving and saying, God, the only reason I have this is because You provided it. I'm giving a portion back to You in worship. So when you give to the Lord, when you drop money in that box back there, that's what that's for. I hope you understand. It's not some sort of guilt thing, some sort of obligation thing. It is you're giving it freely to the Lord because you recognize that God is the giver of every good gift and we want to give back to Him and service to Him and to help support the work of God that is happening in the local church. To help support the furthering of the kingdom, the building of His church that is happening right here in this place. That is why we give to the Lord. I hope that you give to the Lord. That's very important. If you're not, that is one aspect of worship that is not being walked in that we are called to walk in. And we should give of our talents. We should give of our abilities. Give of our giftings. God has gifted every Christian with one or multiple gifts. And they are for the purpose of enriching the church, building up the body. It's our reasonable service to give to the, to the Lord even that, especially that. And so I would hope that you are engaged in service to the Lord. Seriously, folks, I'm calling you to action here. You know, I would love it if half, if not three quarters, if not all of the people in this room would step forward today and say, I want to serve. Put me in. Where can I be used of the Lord in this place? That is a real invitation I'm giving you. I think we would be overwhelmed at first, but we would figure it out we would get you in a place where God has called you. And it would do nothing but bring help to this church. And so I would encourage you, if God's moving on your heart, there's a prayer card in a ch uh, chair near you. Put your name on there. Say, I want to step forward and put your contact information on there. We'll get in touch with you and we will plug you in. We will get you in the game. Well, we're to give God our best. We're to give Him the very best that we have to give. Couldn't help but think of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book in the Old Testament. God's people had returned back to the land from exile. They had been taken out by the Babylonians for a time, 70 years. They came back. They were supposed to be building God's house, building God's temple, and it started well. But what happened? They became lax, complacent, apathetic. And they began to build their own houses and neglect the house of God. They were giving God very poor offerings, very poor sacrifices. They were giving God the leftovers. They were giving God sacrifices that were blind, that were diseased, that were lame and maimed. And God was angry with that. God felt dishonored and disrespected and He sent Malachi to rebuke them for doing this. And he said, do you think God's pleased with that? You think God is pleased with your leftovers? 
He even says, God says He wishes someone would come in and close the doors so that they would stop offering those kinds of things uh, on His altar. And then He says, go ahead and give that to your governor. Do you think He would be pleased with that? And that's essentially like saying paying taxes. I mean, we don't do that with the IRS, do we? The IRS gets what it wants, doesn't it? And so if they don't, they just appear out of nowhere, take everything and disappear. That's how the IRS functions. They are not to be toyed with. Well, we're talking about the living God, the creator of all things. If we give the IRS what they require, how much more should we give the very best to God, the maker of heaven and earth? And so that is really the emphasis of Malachi chapter 1. We're to give God the best, the first that we have and to give it joyfully and to do it from a heart of love and gratitude. So we're told, let's recap, brethren, by the mercies of God in light of everything that has already been stated in chapters 1 through 11, we are to step forward. We are to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We are living sacrifices. And that's significant. I want you to understand because there is no more need for sacrificial animals or anything of the sort to be laid on the altar. There is no more death. There is no more shedding of blood as a sacrifice unto God. Why? Because the ultimate sacrifice has been made. The ultimate price has been paid. Jesus, the Son of God, gave Himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus gave Himself to die for us, never to be repeated again. It's once for all. And there's nothing that needs to be done in addition to it. It is sufficient. It is more than sufficient. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, He meant it. It's finished. There's nothing that we can do to add to that. And so He is the ultimate sacrifice who takes away our sin. They are washed away. They are removed from us at the cross there. Jesus' sins, our sins, excuse me, were on Jesus and God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on that cross. And those sins were punished by God there in that place. For us, those were our sins. Those were our sins on Jesus on that cross. And they were, Jesus was crushed for that. But then he, he died. He rose again from the grave. He conquered sin. He conquered death. The sacrifice was pleasing to the Father. It was acceptable in His sight. And it was validated when Jesus rose. He was vindicated through the resurrection. And now we know that if we put our trust in Him, because He lives, we too shall live. Amen? That is the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. That is the good news of the Gospel. And so now we're called to be living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Every waking day we offer ourselves to the Lord afresh. We are living sacrifices. Holy. Holy to the Lord. That is pure. We want to be a sacrifice to God that is pure. We want to be different. A different and peculiar people. We don't want to look like the world. Much of the church is trying to do that. They think we're going to win the world by looking like the world. But honestly, it just doesn't work. I think that it's cheesy, it's awkward, and we're usually 15 years behind the time anyways, and so there's just no point in that. They are drawn to us because we are different. And so we want to embrace that. Purity, we are different, we are separated unto God. We are consecrated to Him. We are His. We have said enough with this world. I'm laying my life down to you, Father, as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing, acceptable to God. That is, that which God requires and is well pleased with. Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So when we imitate Christ and we love each other the way that Christ loved us, the way that He gave Himself as a sacrifice for us, that which was pleasing to the Father, a sweet-smelling aroma, when we love each other like that, that is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Father. That is a sacrifice that is pleasing in His sight. And that's the kind of thing that we're to be about, church. 
as living sacrifices. Psalm 51, 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That is the kind of sacrifice that God is pleased with. When we are broken before Him. When we agonize over our sin. When we stop trying to defend ourselves. We stop trying to justify ourselves. We stop trying to blame everyone else for who we are and what we have done. And we just get honest before the Lord. And with a broken heart and a humble spirit say, God, I am sorry. I'm sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. Wash me clean. Make me new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. That is the kind of sacrifice that is pleasing to God as a living sacrifice. So we're told that all of this is our reasonable service. It's our reasonable service. The, the word there, reasonable in the Greek, is logikos. And that's obviously the word that we get logic from. And so when one is born through faith, it's only logical to serve the Lord. It's only logical. Nothing less will do. Nothing less will do. You know, but unfortunately, for some reason, we do a lot less so often. We do a lot less. We're called to give ourselves wholly to the Lord as a living sacrifice. It's the, it's the reasonable thing. It's the logical thing. And nothing less will do, but so often we do less, don't we? May we repent of that. May we cry out to God for forgiveness for that. And may we step forward and surrender ourselves entirely to Him in every way. We should do this with joy, excitement, humility, and worship. That's what it's all about. We are worshipers, folks. That's our identity. If you want to know who you are, you're a worshiper in Christ. That's why you exist. That's what you have been uniquely qualified to do as a, someone who was dead in sin, separated from God under His wrath, Forgiven, justified, sanctified, one day glorified, we are uniquely qualified to worship Jesus as gracious and merciful, as loving and kind. It's the reasonable service. So now verse 2, let God transform us. May we be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here now we have a negative command. We had a positive command. Step forward, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, your bodies to the Lord. Now do not. Conversely, don't be conformed. Don't be molded into the image of. What is it that we're not to be molded into the image of? This world. This world. And this is the challenge of a, a living sacrifice. We're trying hard to give ourselves entirely to the Lord, but we are absolutely pulled upon. Are we not? by the enemy of our soul, Satan, by this corrupt world system, by our own flesh. And I know that we can all relate with sometimes feeling like we are our own worst enemies. But it is so hard to be about wholehearted, single-minded service to the Lord when we have this world that is trying so desperately to conform us into its image. We're born in the image of God and we're striving to walk in step with that yet at the same time we have the world which is trying to conform us into its image and that is the battle so I already mentioned the world what is the world when we talk about the world we mean this corrupt system this corrupt system under the power of Satan and in opposition to God and you don't have to go far to know what I'm talking about Anything that is ungodly, that uh, is it's pervasive, it's permeating the society, it would call us to, to, uh, to call it acceptable, to even embrace it or champion it, and it's antithetical to God and to what God stands for. It's worldliness. Uh, everything, so much of what we see in the media, social media, so much of what is happening in politics today, uh, culture, music, I could go on and on and on. There are so many ways in which we see the world around us and it's calling us, it's beckoning us to be like that. And so worldliness, it's important that we kind of understand this because where I'm from, worldliness, where I come from, generally what worldliness is, is referred to is um, having drums. You got drums in your worship, that's worldly. You got guitars in your worship, that's worldly. Men with long hairs, hair, that's worldly. Tattoos, that's worldly. 
Women wearing anything but dresses, worldliness. Going to a restaurant that has a bar in it, that's worldliness. Going to the movie theater, well, that's just worldly. And so we have to understand that is very trivial. That is very silly. That's not really worldliness. David Wells says this, worldliness, that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective. It displaces God and His truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. And so that's what the world is. That's what the world has done. It has taken that which is pleasing and right before God and made that bad. That's weird. That's strange. If you do that, we hate you. Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. But then it takes that which is wicked and champions that as great, as glorious. And if you don't get on board with that, then there is great antagonism that will follow. And so Paul says, don't be sucked into that. Don't be conformed into that. You're a living sacrifice to God. You have given yourself to Him. Don't be conformed into the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is serious language. We're not to love the world, guys. We're not to embrace the things of the world. We're not to be entertained by the things of the world. Sometimes I, I get greatly convicted when I think about um, how often I may be entertained by something that Jesus died for. Just let that soak in. Well, James 4.4, 4, he, he gets really extreme. And he, he says, adulterers and adulteresses, spiritual adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have both. You can't be a friend of the world and look like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, embrace and champion worldly things and think that you are not at enmity with God. The two are absolutely opposed to each other, diametrically opposed. He says, but, but, conversely, instead, by contrast, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. That's the key, folks. How do we not be conformed into this image of the world? Be transformed. The word is the word from which we get metamorphosis. And we see that in nature when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's that same word. And so it's being made new. Be made new in Christ. When you are born again of God and you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus at the cross and you submit yourself unto Him, you are new. You are made new. So my question is, are you new? Are you different? Do you look and sound strangely like the world? Has there been any kind of change in you whatsoever? Are you being made new? Are we growing? We should always be growing, folks. Always. At every age and in every stage, you should be growing. You may be six months in walking with Jesus and you're seeing radical changes in your life. Amen to that. That's an exciting thing. You may have been walking with the Lord for 50 years, 60 years. You should still be growing. You should still be changing. It may not be as radical as it was at one point in time, but believe me, there's always more. There's always more. None of us have arrived. None of us have attained. The Apostle Paul said that himself. I have not apprehended. I have not attained to this, but I press forward. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We make that our aim. Our aim is to keep pressing forward and to grow, to be transformed, to be changed. And so we're told that this transformation comes by the renewing of our mind. The renewing of your mind. I remember the first time when I actually recognized this was happening in my life. I was having a conversation with a loved one that I knew very well. And they were talking about a problem that they more or less had created for themselves and then how they were going to get out of this problem. And I just thought, that is crazy. That is ridiculous. Why would, you, why would you do that? Why would you even think that? And then it dawned on me, that's exactly what I would have done. 
exactly what I would have done. And it was like, whoa, what has happened? What has changed? My mind has changed. It's been renewed. It's been renewed by the Word of God. And these are the ways in which God does renew our minds. The transformation comes, one, by God's Spirit. I mean, it's a spiritual work, folks. This isn't something that you can just get yourself into an excited frenzy and then change yourself. Change comes by the Spirit of God. And so recognizing Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And my Father is glorified that you bear fruit. And so it's by God's Spirit, by God's Word, as we're taking in His Word, feeding upon His Word, meditating on His Word, sharing His Word, memorizing His Word, God begins to transform our minds and our heart. Prayer. As we connect with God in prayer, God does this transforming work in our lives. We're connected to Him. We're crying out to Him. We're worshiping Him. We're seeking Him. We're pleading with Him to help us, to change us. Transformation comes by being around God's people. The Bible says that bad character corrupts, bad company corrupts good character. Sorry, I butchered that a little bit. But you get the point. Being around God's people will have an effect on you. It will change you for the better. For the better. So we want to be immersed in fellowship with God's people if we really want to change, if we want to be transformed. We don't want to isolate. I think it's Proverbs 13.1 that says, He who isolates himself seeks his own and rages against all wise counsel. You know, the banana that leaves the bunch gets peeled every time. And so we need to be around God's people. And obedience. Transformation comes to obedience. What are you doing with the little bit of knowledge that you have? Are you applying it? When I, early on in my walk, I was so excited about God's Word and theology, and there was this older brother in the faith. I was constantly telling him about these things. And, you know, he was wise, and he saw some really inconsistencies in my life. And one day he said, you know, I'm just not impressed by all of this stuff that you're learning. He said, I would rather see you actually live it. And, man, I hated that. I thought that was a cop-out on his part because he just didn't want to get into the deep things. But, you know, it's true. That is so true. Living out what has been revealed to us, that is a very real part of transforming, being transformed. And what, ultimately, to what end? That we may prove the will of God. That we may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The word prove here is to test, to examine. A testing of precious metals to find the authenticity. That's the idea. Test and see that the Lord's will is good. Now, it's rare that we are encouraged to test God. Generally, we're told, don't dare test God. There's a couple times where we're invited to do that. Malachi 3 is one of them, dealing with generosity to the, the temple and to the service of the Lord. But here, it says that you may test and see God's will is good. This is... Um, the word here for God's will it is that which He desires. There are two words for God's will. One is bulamai, and that is His decreed will. He has determined that it's going to happen and nothing will thwart that. Nothing can stay His hand. He is absolutely supreme and sovereign. That is bulamai. But then there is thelema, and that is His desirous will. That's that which He would love to see us walk in and beckons us and calls us to walk in. That which is pleasing to Him. Don't we want to walk in the fullness of God's blessing? Don't we want to know God's will in its fullest and to be obedient to that? The NIV says it like this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's something that I hear Christians agonize over so much. They just want to know God's will, God's plan. Well, this is God's will. Give yourself to Him entirely. Lay your life down as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed into the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you're going to know. Then you're going to taste and see. Then you're going to experience God's good and perfect will in your life, that which is pleasing to Him. God's ways are the best ways. God's will is the best will. Amen? Do you want God's will? Do you want God's best? That is the question. Now step forward. Step forward. Give yourself to Him. Give yourself to Him entirely. And we'll close with this. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 24. And then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What are you clinging to? What, what, is, what, what is it that you are just grasping? You're not willing to let go of that. We're told we need to let go of that. We need to let go and surrender ourselves to God and embrace Him. Some people are really living for security, safety, building up their own luxury, their own pleasure, their own retirement, so on and so forth. We're told that if that's what you're living for, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. You can't keep that. But if you let that go and you give yourself to God entirely as a living sacrifice unto Him, you're going to have something that cannot be taken away from you. Jim Elliott, the, the missionary who died, I believe it was in Ecuador. It's a real popular story. Him and a group of his missionary brothers died in the mission field and their wives actually went back in their place. And God did an amazing work through the women there and that tribe became converted, the tribe that killed their husbands. Jim Elliott said in his journal this, He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. You're not a fool to give away that which you can't keep. You're foolish to think that somehow you can keep it and that it's going to endure. You're no fool to give that away. It's better to let that go in order to gain that which cannot be taken away from you. And so that is my, my plea to you today. Step forward. Give yourselves to God entirely. Serve Him. Obey Him. Love Him. Worship Him. Give Him what He deserves. And you know what He deserves? All of you. Not some of you. All of you. And all that you have. May we give that to the Lord. May we stop clinging to lesser things. May we set that aside and give ourselves to the One who will never leave us, never forsake us, never let us down. Amen? Well, we'll go ahead and close here. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and then we will be dismissed. Father, we praise You. We bring You glory and we worship You in Jesus' name. The prayer for me, Lord, and for my family and for this church that we would be living sacrifices unto You. In light of all that we have heard and seen and know about You and the mighty works of Your hand and Your attributes and Your nature and the Gospel, Lord, may we give ourselves to You wholly. Everything that we have, the very best of who we are and what we have to give, may it be Yours, God. And may it be a pleasing offering, a sweet-smelling aroma that rises to the heavens, God. It's all because of You that we have anything good, God. And we give it all back to You in worship and praise and recognizing that every good and perfect gift comes down from, the, uh, from heaven, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's You, God. We love You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.